the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 11th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. As you know, the United Kingdom is due to leave the European Union on the 29th of March. How this will happen remains unclear. The British Prime Minister, Theresa May, has a plane on standby to travel to Brussels, but with just 18 days left, there is little sign of a breakthrough. Tomorrow, it's expected that MPs will once again reject the deal Mrs May reached with the European Union. If the deal is rejected again, they will then vote on Wednesday on a motion which would mean the UK would not be able to leave before a deal is agreed. And as this is proving to be elusive, the Commons will vote then on Thursday Thursday to extend Article 50 and delay the deadline for leaving. This, according to the Prime Minister, could mean no Brexit and the United Kingdom will never be able to leave the European Union. Let's talk about this with Mairead McGuinness, who's a Fine Gael MEP and Vice President of the European Parliament. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, as with all things Brexit, uh, there's nothing straightforward and it is uh, somewhat more complicated perhaps than I've outlined this morning. Well, I think, no, I think you give a very good summary, but we've been here before, just a few weeks back, we were all talking on the Monday about a vote on Tuesday, a a meaningful vote, and we're going to have another of those tomorrow, and I hope it doesn't turn out to be a meaningless vote, because one of the concerns we have is that this um, is a sense of deja vu, every time Mm. we we hope we're making progress, we end back in the same position. It's possible that she'll delay the vote tomorrow, it's possible that she'll look for a new referendum, it's possible she'll go for a general election? Yeah, well, I think the first option is being talked about. Mm. Uh, the second option about her own future is also on the cards. I doubt if she will call a second referendum this week, but there are um, people uh, pushing for that. But there are lots of complications. If we get to Thursday in the scenario you just painted, where there is a request for an extension, it isn't that the House of Commons can vote for it and they get it. Mm. It has to be agreed by all of the 27 member states. Now, I think Ireland would, of course, be supportive, uh, and I think many other countries as well, but there would be a caveat. I think that we would need to know uh, what the extension is for and what might change within the time period of an extension. And realistically, um, it can only be a relatively short period because it will run into European Parliament elections. Although I am hearing from the UK that both uh, Remainers and Brexiteers are now suggesting that an extension of perhaps 20 months or 24 months Mm -hmm. might be something that could be put forward. But that really would throw the institutions in Europe into some sort of chaos because we have elections in May. We are getting in Ireland two additional seats. If Brexit doesn't happen, it leaves a question mark over the boundaries that have been redrawn and indeed the seats that have been reallocated. So we're going to end up at the end of this week with more questions, I think, than answers. Mm. The only certainty is that Europe has been very clear and very firm. The withdrawal agreement agreed by the Prime Minister herself and indeed proposed in relation to Ireland by the Prime Minister is not going to be reopened. Anything else is possible, but not that. And therefore the request by the United Kingdom uh, that it should be reopened and reshaped to suit their particular concerns 
has really not been very wise because there is no point in trying to push against a wall that will not fall. Um, on the other hand, we are very open to trying to facilitate to answer some of the concerns of the UK around whether they might remain trapped in the European Union. But as the Prime Minister herself said, you know, the uncertainty that might arise from the votes this week could in a way, see the UK ending up staying in the European Union longer than any of us might have predicted. My concern is that the uncertainty will remain. And uncertainty is bad for everyone and bad for businesses who are trying to get their heads around a potential no deal at the end of this month. And I think we would be foolish to take our minds away from our preparations, even if the expectation is that the House of Commons would reject a no deal. Yeah, and if it does uh, reject a a no deal, uh, what then? Uh, Because uh, the British government is prevented from leaving the European Union, uh, but it has to then agree to stay in the European Union, does it not? Or what happens then? Because you say there's 28 countries involved in this marriage. Mm -hmm. Well, look, if the vote um, is against a no deal, it means that there's been a rejection of what's on the table and a rejection of the worst possible scenario, which is this no deal. Mm. Then the House of Commons uh, has to look at what it actually wants. Um, Does it want a short period of time uh, to try and resolve matters that so far have been uh, impossible to resolve? Or does it want a longer period of reflection uh, in which time there might be a reconsideration or some other format or formula put forward? I mean, I'm not clear what the House of Commons uh, will support. One of the things that is very clear is that the Irish question is being painted as the only difficulty around the withdrawal agreement. Mm. And it certainly is for the Brexiteers and members of the DUP. But it's not the only issue for um, MPs in the House of Commons who want a soft Brexit or no Brexit. They're not happy with the withdrawal agreement because they see it as meaning Mm -hmm. that Brexit will happen. Mm -hmm. And that Prime Minister hasn't reached out across the aisle to try and... Uh, you know, at least answer some of their concerns about what's on the table. Okay, but is this a, a grey issue? Uh, because the legality of it is very hard to comprehend. Because if the House of Commons votes that the United Kingdom can't leave unless there is a deal, and no deal is reached, well, then the default position is that they leave without a deal. Uh, and I know that sounds terribly confusing, but but. <laughs> But to try and make it easier to understand, you're talking about a Parliament decision to leave, uh, not to leave unless there's a deal, and that they would leave without a deal. Well, actually, I don't know if I'm complicating matters further. Yeah. They reject a deal that's on the table, which would allow for an orderly Brexit. But they reject the nightmare scenario of a no deal, which means that until they come to some arrangement with the European Union, the United Kingdom remains a full member of the European Union. And that's why the Prime Minister, I suppose, is trying to garner more support for the withdrawal agreement by threatening or warning um, the Brexiteers that, look, if you don't sign up to this, Mm. you're going to end up where you do not want to be. Uh, Do you care to call it at all? I take it if uh, the vote is put tomorrow that it'll be rejected perhaps uh, close to the same degree as last time. Well, I, I can't call anything at the mm. moment, but I think possibly you're you're right that it will be rejected. Maybe not by the, that big, significant vote. Um, and and there is still that possibility that you yourself has have suggested that the prime minister might decide not to hold the vote. Mm. She may decide to leave it for another week. But there is a European Council meeting 
um, the week after, which will, uh, you know, I presume address what happens this week, if it happens this week. And I would say that last week we talked about this for over two and a half hours in the Constitution Affairs Committee. I talked to members about what's the feeling in the, back home in their member states. And I think there's this, a really a desire to get something done, you know, give a decision, give certainty, not have this prolongation of what if and mm. meaningful votes that aren't meaningful at all. So I think with Europe facing into elections and other challenges, there is a desire that the United Kingdom makes a clear statement of its intentions and accepts what's on the table or comes forward with other options than trying to pull apart a deal which the UK initially agreed to. So I don't know if that gives you any sense of certainty. Mm. It certainly, and it gives me more a sense of foreboding on this Monday morning as we face into watching and being glued to the House of Commons. And do you think that Theresa May will ask MPs to vote on the same deal that they overwhelmingly rejected last time round? Or will she, as she said, come back with an amended deal, an improved deal, a deal with uh, legally binding assurances attached to it? Or what will happen? There was talk last week about... uh, possibility of arbitration and that the UK would unilaterally be able to uh, force Europe into arbitration so that it could deal with the pact stop. Yeah, I think there's still a few hours. The negotiations, technical negotiations happened all over the weekend. I mean, there's still a possibility that something might come out of these talks so that the House of Commons would have something different perhaps to vote on. There's also a suggestion that the motion might be about a fantasy deal, in other words, something that the UK, the House of Commons would support. Now, I can't get my head around that, and it's almost too late in the day to be dreaming up um, fantasy deals, although this has been discussed. So my, my impression is that the motion for the House will be on the basis of what's on the table currently, um, if there are some additions or codicils or legal clarifications, that would certainly go to the House of Commons. Would it change the minds of those who wanted to cut open the withdrawal agreement? Um, I, I doubt it, but might it persuade others to, to go along with the deal? That's not clear mm. at all, because the Prime Minister has not reached across the House to uh, the Labour Party and others to try and get more support uh, for what she negotiated uh, with the European Union. And what about the idea of uh, Northern Ireland only backstop? Well, you see, that's where this all began. Um, that was the original proposal by the European Union, which um, was outrightly rejected by uh, the Prime Minister who came up with the proposal for an all-UK backstop. Mm. So I think we keep going back to the past and forward to the future without knowing mm. what exactly the UK will support And I think it goes down to, because I have had discussions with Brexiteers, they have a great sense of uncertainty themselves. They don't trust the European Union. They have this idea we want to trust them inside the European Union. And I have said very clearly to those who will listen, that is absolutely not the case. If anything, there is much more of a desire to to allow the UK leave, because that was how they voted, but to give us um, an indication of of the manner of the leaving. We Mm. hope it won't be a leaving and slamming the door. And I suppose one of the things that we're not discussing is even if there were a no-deal scenario, there would be a lot of tidying up to be done between Europe and the United Kingdom. And it's questionable as to whether we will go into negotiation after a no-deal 
immediately or whether there will be a period of trying to settle nerves and frustration and perhaps anger. But even in no real scenario, it is impossible for these two parties, Europe and the United Kingdom, never to speak again. I mean, if that were the case, I think we would be looking at quite a... Uh, I mean, an unprecedented uh, case of political breakdown completely. Mm. Yeah, well, we don't get there. I think it's uh, quite often how the most amicable of divorces ends up. Uh, it's uh, just the nature of going uh, at loggerheads with each other. Uh, but the idea of uh, Northern Ireland only backstop would be rejected under the current uh, political makeup, uh, but if Mrs. May was to end her reliance on the DUP through a general election, let's say, uh, would there be more press, more prospects of it being acceptable? Well, look, your guess is as good as mine. I'm not so sure. And the idea that there would be another election, what, what impact would that have then on the current state of negotiations and perhaps then an extension of Article 50 would absolutely be required. The other scenario that we haven't suggested is that the Prime Minister, if she's heavily defeated again tomorrow evening, mm. might just say, look, I really, I can't carry on because I've been defeated twice. I'm not able to get change. Somebody else needs to take over this um, task, this mammoth task. Now, she hasn't shown that willingness to step aside or to be even pushed aside. Um, whether she would take that decision herself personally, depending on how this week goes, I think none of us know. I mean, and that okay. is the difficulty that we are sometimes innocent bystanders uh, in um, a debate that's raging in the House of Commons, which re- reflects the debate and divisions in the UK population about Europe, about leaving and the manner of the leaving. Okay, we leave there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Good morning to you. Mairead McGuinness, Finnegale MEP, Vice President of the European Parliament. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Lisa Smith is a native of Dundalk. She joined the Defence Forces when she was just 19. She served in the 27th Infantry Battalion for five years. She went on to the Air Corps where she worked on the government jet, former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern, former local TD and Minister Dermot Ahern have both been remembering her on the plane and uh, Dermot Ahern talking about how the distinct accent made him ask her if she was from Dundalk and how they struck up a, a friendship over a number of years. Uh, she left uh, the Air Corps and stayed in the Defence Forces for some time but left in 2011 after uh, converting to Islam and wanting to wear a head dress whilst working for the Army. Uh, she gave an interview in 2011 and talked about her former life when she used to drink and smoke and do a little hash and enjoy clubbing but converted to Islam and it's thought that uh, about four or five years ago she made her way to Syria. Let's talk about this with Kieran Deneen who is uh, the public affairs correspondent with uh, the Irish Sun and you've a, a very different photograph of Lisa Smith in the Sun this morning, uh, Kieran, than that of uh, the woman we've been seeing in hijab. Morning Michael, yes, um, this is a photograph of Lisa on a night out um, about nine years ago uh, shortly before um, she uh, she had a bad breakup, a relationship uh, breakup, which um, we we understand is, saw her um, going to uh, get, get depressed and uh, was a guest the start of a road that led her to um, turning to uh, the Islam religion and uh, becoming radicalised in the end and going on to uh, 
marry an, an Islamic State sympathizer who ended up uh, losing his life uh, while fighting uh, in Syria. So mm-hmm. exactly, this is a photograph of very different Lisa uh, out enjoying um, a few drinks with her pals and... Um, by all accounts, uh, she enjoyed a nights out and um, also enjoyed uh, McDonald's. She was a big fan of McDonald's and, um, you know, enjoyed Western culture and was also a huge fan of the Irish rugby uh, team. But uh, once she did um, embrace um, the Islam religion and uh, she did turn her back on Western uh, culture and Western way of life, uh, which included drinking and enjoying McDonald's and even uh, watching the Irish rugby team. So... Um, she she certainly is a far different uh, woman now than she was when um, this photo was taken uh, nine years ago. Uh, and uh, she married, as you say, she became a, a wife and a, a mother to a child uh, that's now uh, two years of age uh, and a, a widow in a very short space of time. That's right, exactly. Yeah, so her uh, her, her husband uh, lost his life while fighting uh, in um, Syria and... Um, she is now uh, detained by the U.S. authorities after being rounded up in the northern part of the of the region. So, um, you know, she uh, is keen to come home now. We understand uh, the justice minister has said she would like to come back home, but um, he equally says that uh, Ireland won't be sending any officials out to Syria to try and um, help her come back, and that we are essentially relying on. Um, our uh, international contacts to try and get her home. All right, uh, and uh, the ISIS stronghold of Baghouz, where she was living, was uh, about uh, to fall, and she fled, as many did, and is now in a refugee camp. Uh, and it uh, appears uh, that uh, she's been discovered as being there by people here because of an ITV interview. That's right. Exactly. She spoke. Uh, she spoke to ITV um, from the region, uh, which did alert uh, people here of her of her whereabouts. Um, um, the justice minister also speaking yesterday says, you know, um, that this is a conflict. This is a region of uh, in huge conflict, and also made the point that uh, it's not a place that Irish citizens go on holidays, uh, which is a point that Charlie Flanagan. Uh, made yesterday when speaking about this so um yeah she's certainly in a very difficult spot at the moment as as is her uh child and the irish authorities are keen to do everything they can um to get her home and mm. um what happens then i guess will uh you know will be a new uh lot of decisions will have to be made by the government what happens uh in the future when uh incidents like this arise. Alright, but they are limited in what they can decide. Uh, she's an Irish citizen and that citizenship uh, is her entitlement. Uh, she can't be stripped of it. Exactly, and uh, you know, uh, before this uh, case arose, uh, just recently, Leo Varadkar has said that he would like, uh, you know, people to be in situations like this to be to come back to Ireland. You know, and uh, some countries around the world have taken different stances, but I guess we have uh, always had we have always adopted this uh, interior this approach that you know, if somebody was to be caught up who is an Irish citizen, that we would do all we can to uh, bring them home. So uh, that mm-hmm. does seem to be um, the approach being taken by the Department of Foreign Affairs. Okay, we'll have much more on this later in the programme. We'll also be speaking with uh, Dr. Sheikh Umar Al-Quadri about how somebody from Dundalk may become radicalised the way Lisa Smith did. Uh, People can read your report, obviously, in The Sun today, but they can also read uh, about a massive drugs haul uh, that uh, you're writing about uh, that took place in County Meath. Tell us more. That's right, uh, Michael. Uh, I was in uh, Navin uh, Court yesterday where uh, Ronan Finnegan of Wintern, Navin County Mead, was charged with possession of a substance, including cocaine, 
for selling or device supplying uh, in contravention of the Misuse of Drugs Act. This came following a drugs bust uh, where um, uh, drugs and green cocaine were discovered uh, under the staircase of his home uh, to the value of €865,000. Um, the bail hearing heard that he was, uh, in the words of uh, uh, the guard, the guard, guard Nora Connolly, was uh, caught red-handed. And um, in, in, while the application for bail was being made, um, uh, we learned that he had tickets uh, to go to uh, Liverpool's last home um, match of the season. But uh, now that he has to sign on every day uh, uh, to, in, in, under the terms of his bail, he may no longer be able to go to the football match. OK, and apparently two people were arrested following the search of that house in Navan on Friday evening. Cannabis, MDMA, cocaine, diamorphine, uh, suspected mixing agent and other drugs related to paraphernalia found, uh, as you say, the drugs are valued at €865,000. It, it really is a, a huge haul and by the sounds of it, uh, close uh, to a drugs factory. Sure, uh, it's a huge uh, victory for the local Gardaí who, uh, who, you know, who um, and comes following um, a, a planned operation on this particular house. So uh, the Gardaí are very uh, happy with how this um, particular uh, inquiry is going. And uh, yeah, one uh, woman was uh, released uh, without, without charge and uh, this man, Ron Finnegan, has now been charged um, with the possession of the substances. Uh, the court uh, case only heard about uh, cocaine, but exactly um, the Gardaí have released information of a number of other substances, including, as you say, M- MDMA. All right. Thank you indeed, Kieran Deneen of uh, The Irish Sun. Now, the Ireland-Palestine group, Solidarity Campaign Group, that is, held a protest outside of RTE on Friday calling on uh, the Eurovision Song Contest uh, contestant Sarah McTiernan uh, to withdraw from the competition which is to take place in Tel Aviv on uh, the 16th of May. We're joined by Martin O'Quigley, Treasurer of the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Good morning to you, Martin, and uh, thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, Why do you want, want Ireland not to participate uh, good morning, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, well, I, I, it, it's, it goes back to 2005. Uh, and the, because of, you know, uh, when uh, the Palestinians signed the Oslo Agreement uh, with Israel, and uh, in the subsequent years, I think in the following five years from 91, uh, that uh, the number of settlers and settlements increased, doubled in those years. So I think... By 2005, Palestinian civil society could see that uh, uh, there was no real uh, support from the international community and that there had to be uh, another way of calling Israelis to account or putting pressure on them to, to uh, respect Palestinian human rights. So the, 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 the Palestinian civil society called for a boycott in 2005, uh, like the model against apartheid South Africa. Uh, until the occupation was ended, uh, Palestinian ref- uh, refugees had a right to return to their homes. Well, they have a right, but are allowed to return to their homes, uh, like all refugees. And Palestinians living, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, uh, get full civil rights. So, uh, leave, going on from that, mm. and particularly, it, I think, in the last year, uh, that uh, the, uh, the the Palestinians in Gaza, refugees in Gaza, have been uh, protesting uh, for uh, the right to return to their homes, uh, which would be in what is now Israel. 
uh, and they have the, uh, we have had over 180, uh, nearly 200 people shot dead uh, by snipers, including 35 children. We've had 6,000 uh, wounded, uh, maybe 20,000 injured by uh, tear gas, rubber bullets, etc. So, uh, and no real sanction from the international community. So I think it's more important now than ever uh, to support the Palestinian cause for the boycott. Uh, it's but what would, be achieved, what would be achieved by something like this? Uh, I mean, it is only a song contest, after yeah. all. Well, I, I was involved with the South African uh, uh, boycott as well, mm. the boycott against the party in South Africa. And we did urge musicians not to perform in South Africa as well. It's just to show that you can't uh, whitewash your crimes against people by appearing to be just a normal country, you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, and I think Israel, the Israel culture minister has actually said that. Well, we uh, could do an off lot more. Uh, I mean, we could boycott produce from uh, the occupied territories uh, as is proposed under Francis Black's uh, bill, uh, which uh, has proved to be controversial, not just here, but elsewhere. And uh, I'm not sure if you've seen uh, the story in the Irish Times today, but Suzanne Lynch is reporting uh, that 10 members of Congress have written to the Irish government suggesting that American investment in Ireland will be under threat if Ireland adopts the measures in Francis Black's bill. Uh, there's a quote here which says that we do not want the economic links between our two countries weakened due to ill-considered legislation. The stakes for Ireland are high. It's stated, noting 67% of foreign direct investment into Ireland is from America. The Taoiseach has written back to these congressmen and said there's nothing to worry about. The government will reject this bill. This is uh, just a proposal from the opposition parties. Uh, well, it, 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 it's, it's strange. I mean, congressmen do that because the American State Department doesn't recognise the settlements as illegal either. You know what I mean? Under international law, there is no one who recognises the settlements in the Palestinian occupied territories as being legitimate. Uh, and and it, they are illegal. And in, as, as Francis Black said in the Senate, introducing the bill. But you know that Israel's greatest ally is the United States. Are, are a war crime. Mm. So why should we, why should we participate uh, or allow people to participate in, in war crimes? Well, the Taoiseach, by all accounts, has written to reassure the congressman, and you know uh, that the United States would be Israel's greatest ally. Oh, well, in a sense, it depends on the parties. I mean, if, 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 if you know, in, in, uh, there is in the Democratic Party uh, a change. I mean, the, the, the support in America for Israel was always... A bipartisan support, the Republicans and Democrats supported Israel. But now there is, there is a change in the Democratic Party. And uh, a lot of the young people in the, who've joined the Democratic Party and some of the people who've been elected recently, uh, like Ilan Omar, are calling for a boycott and, and, and are, who is supported by a lot of people in the Democratic Party. So it's changing in America. But, but the thing is, I mean, do we respect international law or not uh, as a country? Uh, and, 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 and international human rights. And if we don't, uh, like, what, like what, do, what do we stand for uh, as a country? And, and what, what, what hope is there for anyone who's actually under occupation? Okay. Uh, I mean, you, I, you have sanctions against various countries. You had sanctions against, against Russia. You had sanctions against Syria. 
you know, uh, and, and Israel can do these things without any sanction whatsoever. All right, I have to leave there. Martin, thank okay. you indeed for joining us this morning. Martin O'Quigley, Treasurer of the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, we've been hearing concern about uh, the long waiting times to sit a driving test, depending on where you live in uh, the country. Let's talk about this with Jackie Healy-Ray. Jackie Healy-Ray is Michael Healy-Ray's son, and he'll be running as an independent election candidate. A young person, a young driver, and somebody who takes a keen interest in issues like these. And you've been uh, looking at some of uh, the statistics given to you uh, about the... the waiting times. Uh, there's a lot of people waiting to take a test uh, and uh, you've local figures for us uh, to begin with, uh, Jackie Healy-Ray. In County Louth, some 748 people waiting on a test. In County Meath, the number is higher, 854 people. Uh, but there's no doubt uh, that people in Louth will be tested much quicker than those in Meath. Why so? Good morning and, and to, to all your listeners as well. Just to, just to correct you on the figures, the figures that, that I got from the RSA, you have two brackets of figures. You have numbers waiting for an actual appointment, and then you have the numbers who have been scheduled for an appointment. So the actual number for Mead at the, in, in, is uh, 1,856, because even though those who have got an appointment could still be waiting, like I had was talking to someone this morning, who got their appointment, but it's for six weeks' time. So the, the number still waiting in, in Mead is 1,856, and in Loud, it's 1,713. Do you mean that 1,856 people have applied for a test and 854 have been given a date? Uh, so uh, 1,856 have applied and 1,002 in Loud, in Mead, sorry, have been mm. given a date. Right. But again, at date, you could be a young person today and you're, you could be given your date, but that could be for six weeks' time. Right. And... So, but yes, you are correct in saying that people in need will have a longer wait for the simple fact they only have one test, one one test centre, and one tester for the entire county of Mead. So, like, how are we supposed to be in a position to get on top of these lists if we do not have enough testers? Like nationally, we have fifty-five thousand people waiting still for their test, and we only have one hundred and fifty testers. There's some counties in Ireland, Longford and um, Longford have no tester along with Wicklow. They actually have no tester in the county at all. And what do people do there? They're, say that again? What do people do if uh, they're looking to sit a, a driving test? Where do they go? Well, see, I, 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 this, this is what I'm trying to find out now from the RSA because... We only got these figures last week, right. and so we have sent in follow-up questions that have not yet been replied to. Mm. But, like, take Wicklow, for instance. You have 1,115 people waiting for a test, but there's no tester. Mm. Now, uh, I, I find it very hard to believe how the RSA and, both the, and the Minister for Transport can be serious about trying to get on top of these waiting lists if, if they're not even, uh, how do you say, assigning testers 
to, to, to the different counties. Okay, so, 52 testers in Dublin, 10 in Cork, 8 in Galway, uh, and in line with uh, the larger populations. Uh, but County Louth mm-hmm. uh, appears uh, to be one of uh, the county's best facilitators in this sense, with five testers, just one in Meath. Uh, how does this break down in terms of waiting times? Because we're told that on average, the national average is 12 weeks. Yes. So it, it so we'll take for instance in in Cork, you have six you six thousand seven hundred and fifty six people waiting for a test, but there's only ten testers. So like you could be waiting anything up to sixteen to eighteen weeks in Cork for for a test because in Kerry, for instance, we have six testers. Now I'm told that these six testers are not working. We say you might have one to two testers a day working max. Mm. So. Even the six testers, if, if you had or six testers in Kerry working flat out, we'll say doing, you have an hour allocated for a test, six tests a day, given their breaks, like you're, you're talking about 36 a day. Mm. So you would start to move through them. But you'd, like another, because other statistics that they gave me was the number of people who are currently unavailable to apply for the test due to maybe they're on their six month probation after getting, just passing their theory test or they haven't their 12 lessons done. So they have those numbers as well. And like in County Mead, you have another 690 waiting to come online, maybe within the six, next six to 12 months. Hmm. So how, how are these people going to be facilitated if it's just going to be adding to an even longer list that one tester is assigned to try and get through? And if you take a, a county like Wexford, where there's four testers uh, and uh, in around 700 people uh, who are hoping to sit a, a, a test, uh, they're going to be tested much quicker than in places like mm-hmm. Cork, where there's 10 testers. Uh, Correct. So and, and like even take Sligo, for instance. Sligo has one test center and there's seven testers. So there's there's no consistency. There's there's actually no pattern as to how how we say these testers are assigned, and uh, and, and a method that actually trying to tackle. Now there there is solutions though. Mm. There is solutions. Back in 2007 and 2008, uh, the RSA employed uh, SGS. They were a private company who came in to tr- who were employed to get get on top of uh, the backlogs, and I think that is your first solution. I, I would be calling on them to, to, to get these people back in to get on top of the list while, while they urgently recruit new testers. Because unless you recruit new testers, the waiting times can never come down. We have, the minister introduced stricter penalties lately under the Clancy Amendment. And unless, you, unless like, I don't have it, I wouldn't have as much of, of a problem with the Clancy Amendment if there were solutions to these problems that are in place, because unless you can... This is having your car seized from you. Yes, correctly, and there's, mm-hmm. there's eight cars being seized a day from provisionally licensed drivers that we found out, which was reported by the Irish Times recently. So eight a day, that's, that's, re- that's revenue of maybe €1,200 Euros per seizure, mm. and, and not alone on top of how much it's going to be cost to keep the car impounded, depending on when you can get it back. So <clears throat> it's, it's unless you unless the minister would be willing to, like, I, again, I wouldn't have so much of a problem with the Clancy Amendment if the minister had fixed the problems that we have first. Mm. If there was an, a real uptake in recruiting testers, if you were waiting maybe, I, I would honestly say that five to ten days of a waiting time for a test would be adequate. Because if you're telling somebody, well, we have these stricter penalties mm. in place, 
well, you have to provide a solution for them yeah, in order but, to But, but you're going to drive for the rest of your life and uh, I suppose you've, uh, what is it, 16 years to think about whether you want to sit a, a test or not. Why does it need to be done so quickly? Because of these stricter penalties that we have. Mm. If you're telling people, right, lads, you can't move out of your yard without somebody in mm. the car. In rural Ireland, we have people who... Their parents, both parents are working. Mm. They mightn't be around. But you can get a driving like, license at 16, is it? You can, you can sit your theory test at 16. 16 and then so a, get a your, test at 17, you is it? What we'll call your tractor mm. license. And you can, you can renew that in at 17. You can okay. get your, your B stamp on it. Mm. But sure, isn't, that, isn't that long before you'd need a license? No, because see, when you, you, your six-month probation period only starts when you get your B category. Mm. So... You have to wait your six months in uh, before you can actually sit the test. So that's long enough. Mm. And you do your 12 lessons in between that. And like I say, the minute that your six months is up, you should, within five to ten working days, in my opinion, be able to get and sit your test. Then if you fail your test, there's this thing that you have to wait 21 days before you can apply to do it again. That should be done away with. Because you might, fla- you might fail your test in a total technicality. So, like, what I'm saying is that if you're telling somebody that they can't uh, use their only mode of transport to get around, well, you have to offer them solutions, which isn't, being, which, which isn't there at the moment. You have to recruit more testers. You have to provide adequate public transport in rural areas where, where there isn't, where it's non-existent. I was canvassing the other evening, and I met a 19-year-old woman. She said to me, she said, look where you are, she said, and turn around. Both my parents are self-employed. They work six days a week. Okay. I have a, a part-time job in a local retail store inside in Tralee. How am I supposed to get there? Okay. There's no bus. You're, she was up. Okay. She was up in, in, in a rural in a rural area. An absolutely no, impossible and no. very long wait. Jackie, I have to leave it yeah. there. I've run out of time. No, but thank you indeed thank you. for joining us this morning. No. That's Jackie Heady Ray. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Quite a few people concerned about Brexit, Michael, and what's going to happen this week. Mm. Tommy from Dundalk rang in during your interview at the top of the show with Mairead McGuinness, and he feels that because of the week that's in it, the Taoiseach and the main ministers should not be travelling anywhere this week week. He says that he believes that the Taoiseach at the very least should be with Ar- in Ireland because it's such a major time for Ireland and what decision is deci- you know is made mm. in Westminster. He feels that maybe uh, the President could go to the United States instead of the Taoiseach and the Taoiseach could preside over the parade here in Dublin because he says everyone is on tender hooks. Okay. Families, mm. workers, etc. Alright, I have a feeling it'll be a bit of a, a damp squib of a, a week, a very important week and uh, one of uh, the most important so far but uh, I'm not sure that there'll be much uh, for the Irish government to respond to this week. Uh, the Taoiseach uh, will travel to Washington today for the St. Patrick's Day celebrations. Seamus from Dundalk thinks it's inevitable that Brexit is now going to happen. All we can hope for, Michael, is that Article 50 will be extended so that it won't end up being a hard border because that's always been his biggest fear, as he has told us consistently. Extended or suspended, or is there a difference between the two? Yes. Mm. 
Um, Damien from Dundalk, 18 days to Brexit, Michael and businesses are extremely worried. The fallout from this could be catastrophic for this country. The MPs in Westminster don't seem to grasp or be able to grasp that it's going to mean very tough times for the UK too. I just don't see the sense of it all, says Damien. Mm. Uh, Peter from Drogheda says we will know exactly what way we are heading in relation to Brexit this week but it doesn't look good Michael what we thought was highly unlikely is likely now to come to pass I'm not sure <laughs> that uh, he's right he may be of course well <laughs> you're sure optimistic Michael does, yeah. today you're optimistic yeah, well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think we're going to find ourselves in a, a situation uh, where MPs uh, will reject Mrs May's deal and then vote uh, in favour of not leaving unless there's a, a deal in yes. place. And uh, as we've been discussing, God knows what that will result in. It could result in the UK staying in the EU indefinitely or it could result in them not reaching a, an agreement with Europe and it goes to the legal default position, which is a crash out uh, that there would be no deal and that they would have to leave. Okay. Mm, yeah. We'll know we'll know by the end of the it's week. It's as clear as day. Yes. It's, it's as clear as day. I can see Kenneth Flood of Sinn Féin here nodding his Sh- head. Shaking his head more like <laughs> No, he's nodding his head. It's just a simple stuff as far as Kenneth Flood is concerned. You've come into us though about other issues and some of the more historic structures in the town of Drogheda and indeed the maintenance of these structures. Yeah, um, everybody can see the historic towers and buildings and town walls and town covered in trees and foliage. Um, to treat them, you have to gain ministerial consent. Um, last year, I was watching the council do some maintenance around the Maitland mm. Tower, spraying around the base of it and doing a pretty good job around the base. But when you look up, there's trees and branches and nests up there and it's damaging the brickwork of these centuries-old historic buildings. Um at that point, I contacted the operations department and asked them, would the towers, the town walls, hmm. the border gates at Lawrence's Gate, the old abbey, be sprayed, trees, that foliage removed uh, at that time? Well, you'd be talking about what? Mm. Moss and ivy, uh, this sort of stuff? It's actual uh, trees coming out of them. Of mm. them well, it must, <laughs> be, yeah, must yeah. be thick ivy branches, yeah, though. In, I mean. in some places, yeah. 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 But... Uh, it took months for them to respond to me. Mm. And when they responded, they said that it was not the council's responsibility, it was the OPW's because mm. um, the national monuments. Um, I came back and asked them for some clarification again, but then months passed again before I got a response, which was from the Heritage Department, which said, in their opinion, it's the council who are responsible for the maintenance of the towers and the walls, mm. and that they can carry out the, stre- the spraying and treating of the works to remove uh, the foliage um, but you need to get, get, get gain uh, ministerial consent for So they've corrected what the council said. They've said that it is the Opera- responsibility of the council. Operation said one thing, right. Heritage said another. Mm. I followed up then at, at several meetings, asked mm. the Director of Service for Infrastructure and even the Chief Executive at, at one point, mm. and they clarified that, yes, uh, the council uh, would do it. I could do it, sorry. Yeah, but it, whose responsibility council. is it ultimately? Council. It is the council. Council. Okay, yeah. right, okay. Mm. Um, a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, my emails then went unresponded to mm. again for, for several more months. So I thought I'd have to bring this to a motion. I submitted the motion and it was on the agenda in February. And when I saw the response that you would need to contact a um, architect archaeologist as part of the works and there would be costs involved and so on and there's nothing in the budget for it. Now I've been asked since April last year, they're well aware of it. Um, we had to fly in August, we have to fly in August again mm. this year. They didn't look at anything at all to do with doing this work. When I asked last month what the actual cost would be my emails have not been responded to. My queries have not been responded mm. to. So that's why I think the council are not taking the historical buildings in Drada seriously. But they have said to you that they can't afford to do it. They, or that they, the money isn't there to do it, however, the however much there, it is. But yeah, they will not mm, give a price. Yeah, yeah. They will not give mm. a price. And undoubtedly, it, it would be costly. It would be specialised work in that they are national monuments. A lot of these buildings would be delicate and easier than other buildings, let's say, to damage. And uh, there's a responsibility on the council not to damage these buildings or to ensure that nobody else does, for that matter, something that we've uh, discussed uh, in another context we uh, did on we the discussed program, the yeah. unauthorised mm-hmm. works in the budget mm-hmm. last year yep. which yep. the cost of the council at the end of that was 4,686 mm. euro mm. to rectify that now if that happens again if well intentioned mm. people think okay I'm going to the flag's coming yep. we want to put our, mm. our, our, our best show on we want to make the town look as, as good as it's possibly going to look and I'll just remove this piece of ivy mm. there is a risk well, you could pull half the building down with exactly, it, yeah, exactly. and, you, and you can't replace it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, can, mm-hmm. you can't replace it. Then, mm-hmm. like I said, these these are hundreds of years old buildings. Mm-hmm. It needs to be done properly. It needs to be done with ministerial consent. Mm-hmm. It needs to be done by the council. But the main point is, it needs to be done. Mm. It has not been done in years. But there, there is a, another issue to this, because while it may prove very costly to do this, uh, I think the question is, can you afford not to do it? Because there are national monuments and there is this responsibility to maintain and upkeep them and so on. Uh, and when something like Ivy gets into a, a building, it can be detrimental to the structure. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to look at similar urban centres around the country. If you mm. go to Kilkenny, or Waterford, similar population size, similar history. Um, their medieval centre is well maintained, well marked, well signposted, and not a hint of foliage mm. on the monuments in the town because it's part of their regular upkeep. Mm. It's in Waterford just recently, the town walls are marked out. You can walk you can w- walk the route of the town walls. There's various monuments mm. highlights that the environs uh, are open t- to the public. That's what Drada should have. Now, we were left out of the National Spatial Strategy in 2002, which um, decided spending for the, for the next 20 years. And we've seen the results of that with inf- uh, spending in infrastructure and heritage and culture and history in other large urban centres. Mm. But Drada doesn't have that. Right now, we're in the, the draft phase of the Regional Spatial and Economic Strategy, which will decide spending in this region for the next 20 years. The Drada Sinn Féin Group made a submission to the, to the RSES asking for investment in Drogheda's historical town centre to be marketed hmm. as a medieval town town centre just as Waterford and Kilkenny were and that investment made in the Westgate vision but also in our historical structures like St Lawrence's Gate the Buttergate hmm. um, at the Millmount and the Abbey 
Okay. I'm not even sure I understand the point in that. If they are national monuments, there should be national guidelines in terms of how they're looked on. Uh, But it's an interesting point nonetheless. uh, And uh, thanks for making it and for coming into us uh, this morning. Thanks very much. Thank you indeed. Sinn Féin Councillor Kenneth Flood. Now let's go back to some more of uh, the calls. What else have you got for us, Marie? A couple in relation to the Lisa Smith story, Michael. Mm. Uh, Jim wants to know why the urgency to get Lisa Smith home and if she is facilitated because she's an Irish citizen, will she be monitored here? How do we know that she wouldn't be a threat? Jonathan says Lisa Smith made her bed, let her lie in it and suffer the consequences. Moray says it's hard to understand how someone like uh, this lady who served her country and by all accounts appeared to be an ordinary girl who enjoyed life ended up where she is and why. And she thinks it is the why that we should be focusing okay, on. Okay, and we'll be discussing some of those questions a little bit later on this morning as well. Okay, that's it, Michael. Okay, thanks for that, Marie. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about an Irish Times Ipsos MRBI poll which was published last week. Two polls, in fact, one in Northern Ireland and a parallel poll in the Republic and both polls dealing with Irish unity. And if there was to be a referendum held on a united Ireland uh, and uh, the results are, are somewhat different. We'll talk about it as I say uh, with uh, Jim Wells, DUP MLA for North Down. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, I suppose not too much surprise in uh, the Republic of Ireland where 62% of uh, those polled said that they would vote in favour of a united Ireland. Uh, just 32% in favour in Northern Ireland but just 45% again that's less than half of uh, the people who were polled. Does that come as a surprise or of any concern to you? Well, remember, it was the Irish Times. Uh, and, you know, the Irish Times would not be seen as a unionist newspaper. Well, so it's not the Irish Times. It's an Ipsos MRBI poll. Yeah. They're independent yeah. pollsters and they use very scientific methods for carrying out these surveys. Yeah, it's often the polls tend to reflect the ethos of the the, the organisation that commissioned them. What I would say is that um, all the other information we have, particularly the Life and Times survey, which is a very thorough government uh, uh, opinion poll, indicates an overwhelming majority of people in Northern Ireland wish to remain part of the United Kingdom. Uh, there has been real no change in that, despite all the scaremongering by so many media outlets that uh, the Brexit is going to end the union as we know it. Uh, you know, I think once we get Brexit out of the way and things settle down, mm. we'll return to a normal situation where the vast majority of people, I would say 99% of the unionist population, wish to remain British. And a significant, something between a quarter and a third of the, the Catholic population wish to remain unionist as well. And the, the, Mike, the question I ask every time, and you've no answer to, where are the Irish citizens going to come up with the €3,000 per individual, mm. man, woman and child? This is the £11.5 billion, euro, yes. Yeah, that they're going to have to come up with mm. to continue to fund a united Ireland. I mean, are the people in, that listen to your programme, the hundreds of thousands in, in Louth and Monaghan, are they prepared to pay €3,000 each in perpetuity? That's maybe €15,000 per family to maintain a united Ireland. I think when the hard realities mm. are put on the table, I think people will change. All right, uh, but uh, I mean... 
as I say, the Ipsos MRBI polls are, I think, considered by most people to be credible polls. Uh, and if you want to argue that point, uh, perhaps the credibility is shown in uh, the breakdown of uh, the figures because in Northern Ireland, 32% are in favour of United Ireland, but just 9% of those are Protestants, uh, 62% in favour in the Republic. Uh, and uh, you see... Uh, those figures change uh, very differently uh, north and south. Uh, but, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. It's 9% uh, who are in favour who are Protestant in the north and 75% of Protestants against in the north. So, I mean, that sort of uh, outlines the views of people on sectarian lines, does it not? Yeah, I, I presume when you use the phrase north, you mean Northern Ireland. Yes. Uh, now, uh, what I say is that, you know, uh, let's be honest about all the surveys which show that between 98 and 99% of the Protestant community in Northern Ireland wish to remain British. So I don't know where they got their 9% from, because that's, that's completely unheard of there to be any significant uh, support for United Ireland amongst the Protestant community. Secondly, I would be interested in knowing how many Catholics said that they would wish to continue to support uh, Northern Ireland remaining within the United Kingdom, because that clearly will be the guarantee that things will never change. Because uh, we have a phrase up here, Michael, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die on Tuesday. Similarly, there might be people who have a philosophical wish to have a United Ireland, but if they're told it's coming next week, I think you'd get phrases like, hold on here, I have a little business deal to sort out, or I want to get my children educated, or whatever. I suspect when the cold, hard reality of United Ireland is faced, that philosophical desire will be parked for many years. But you would have your work cut out for you if uh, this poll was accurate, wouldn't it? I mean, going into a campaign with support of 45%, that means it's anybody's game to win, doesn't it? If that were, those facts were true, but <laughs> there's not a soul up here, Mike, in either, any parties, but I believe that to be the case. I mean, there, there is always a strong support for the UK, not only for political reasons, but also economic. We are part of the fifth largest economy in the world. And there's no desire whatsoever then to become a major part of a much smaller country. And Northern Ireland, despite all of the rumours, is doing very well economically. We have record low unemployment, record levels of employment, mm. a huge amount of investment. Northern Ireland, despite all this problem, is going well. And I don't think many middle-class Catholics will want to upset that and to go into a constitutional crisis. Because a United Ireland, which goes 52-48, to use the European election result, uh, with almost half the population totally incensed, by that change. I mean, that's not going to work either. It has to be something by agreement, and there will not be agreement by a large proportion of the population to United Ireland. And do you think uh, that uh, the United Kingdom crashing out of the European Union may change views? Uh, first of all, the United Kingdom will not be crashing out of anything. That's, again, a phrase used by the Ramoners. United, Ireland, uh, United Kingdom may leave on the basis of a no-deal Brexit and go into INTO rules, and there will be turmoil, and there will be difficulties for a few months after that. And then when things settle down, and people realise that it's in the economic best interest of the United Kingdom to, uh, to go into uh, a free trade situation throughout the world, I think people will suddenly realise what's all the fuss about. Mm. I think we're back into millennium bug territory here, Michael. I don't know if you're old enough to remember. No, unfortunately, the, yes, yeah. You are right. Mm. I don't, I, I, so you're a hard, difficult man to age. But um, <laughs> yeah. if, if remember, we were told that the world was going to crash because of the millennium bug, and one heating mm. system in South Korea shut down, and that was that. Similarly, all the, the gloom and doomsters are saying that this is going to be an absolutely dreadful situation. Things will settle down. The United Kingdom will, will rebound. It'll go out into the world and 
uh, establish trade agreements and, mm. and prosper. And I think when that happens and people realise that, you know, it was a bit of a, a crying wolf situation, that they will be content to remain within the UK. But still, Mike, where are you going to get your 3,000 euros from? Well, of course, you're highly paid. You can afford to pay it. But where do you think the people in Drogheda and, and Dundalk are going to get 3,000 euros each to keep Northern Ireland and United Ireland? Where's mm. it going to come from? Well, the millennium bug uh, for people who are that be younger was on New Year's Eve 1999 when at midnight uh, the year changed to 2000 and the concern was that the world's computers wouldn't be able to update and that the world would come to a halt uh, because of how much we rely on computers. Uh, But when it comes to Brexit, you say that there may be this leaving without a deal scenario. The Prime Minister says there may be this scenario where you stay in indefinitely. Well, Mike, this is where, very unusually in your programme, I have to say to you, I don't know. (laughs) Because I think uh, this is perhaps the most important week in British constitutional history since the war. And there are so many options out there. I think what's clear is that um, uh, Theresa May's initial uh, Brexit agreement will lose, and lose heavily. Mm. The next vote will be on whether we go for a no-deal Brexit. And I suspect that there'll be a majority in Westminster who'll vote against a no-deal Brexit. I don't like that, but I think that's inevitable. What happens then? Well, you and I will be discussing for many weeks, I suspect. There could be a delay in Brexit of up to three months. Uh, There could be a pressure for a second referendum. And I have long since stopped trying to guess what's going to happen. If I I knew what was going to happen, I could have made a small fortune at the bookies. And this has had so many twists. I don't don't bet, by the way. There's so many twists and tails in this story that I think I would be fascinated to know what you and I will be discussing this time next week. Anything's possible. But um, I think a no-deal Brexit on the 29th of March is probably unlikely. I would say that on that date. I think that's being reasonably fair to say that we're in uncharted territory. We may not be out of Europe uh, at the end of this month. All right. uh, But if MPs vote uh, for the motion, which uh, will uh, mean that a deal must be reached if the UK is to leave, does that mean that uh, the United Kingdom will stay in Europe forever? Obviously, I hope not. I think it's, that would be a disastrous move because it would take away the ace card that we have in our pack, i.e. the ability to say, look, if you don't uh, change your agreement, we're out. I, I, I honestly, I don't know, and that's being honest, but I, I think a three-month extension is on the paper because that means we still have got three months before the new European Parliament meets. If we don't agree at the end of that, then technically speaking, we're, we'd have to stand for the European Parliament. And, you know, it's all the play for. I think we need to just bite the bullet here and leave. But being realistic about it, I think that may not happen on the 29th of March. Or at all, perhaps, uh, because uh, in not saying uh, that's the the case, you obviously feel that that's uh, a prospect. Well, that would be a total negation of the expressed will of 17.4 million people. I think we're there, really then into a constitutional uh, crisis. And who is it you represent? Is it the 17.4 million people or is it uh, all of uh, the people of Northern Ireland? Well, remember you had a referendum in the Irish Republic and Ross Common quite w- wisely voted against same-sex marriage. Mm. But unfortunately, Ross Common has to take the same rules as the rest of, the, the rest of the Ireland. Similarly, Northern Ireland voted to remain, 
but the vast, a vast number, 17.4 million of our fellow citizens voted to leave. So we have to mm. obey that. Simply si- Donegal has to obey the rule on the killing of unborn children. Okay, but if you, if you look at that poll that we were talking about in the Irish Times, uh, they also asked people about Brexit, and 67% of people in Northern Ireland say the DUP is doing a bad job. Well, those, <laughs> yes, but hang on. The, the, the DUP vote... That exactly, those who think we're doing a good job are the DUP voters. And of course, the large proportion of those who said we're doing a bad job never wanted to leave in the first place. Well, so, 50, I mean, 50, a, 57% of uh, that uh, 67% uh, come from a, a Protestant background. Yes, but those, I mean, were, there were a large number of Protestants who voted to stay, and there were a large number of Protestants who didn't vote at all. So the fact is that that vote simply shows the view of people who didn't want to leave in the first place or who couldn't care less about it. Uh, yeah, obviously people are, are having doubts at the minute, but the DUP, I think, are playing a wise long-term game. game. And I think once we get out and things settle down and the economy starts to really grow and prosper, I think people will turn around and say, this is another millennium bug. We just didn't know what to expect. We were confused, and now that things have cleared up, uh, things are fine. And remember, we had exactly the same argument, Mike, when there was a proposal for Britain to join the euro. And there's all these gloom and doom, and we said, oh, this is terrible, we have to join the European currency. We didn't, and we've never looked back. And they've been proved wrong. Have they ever admitted it? No, they haven't. All right. I see you've had a, a busy weekend and uh, you've told uh, the Belfast Telegraph uh, that uh, you were having some light-hearted conversation with members of Sinn Féin and Ballynahinch. <laughs> well, I wouldn't quite put it light-hearted, Michael. There was a, a rally in Ballynahinch of Sinn Féin, first time ever. A lot of people very concerned about it, and there was a counter-rally. All went fine. The police were involved in liaison between myself and other political representatives and, and the Sinn Féin supporters, and it passed over without the slightest problem. And uh, I think that's a model for the future. In previous times, that could have ended up in, in, in violence. It didn't. It was all went fine. Okay, uh so it was lucky that there wasn't violence, is it? No, I think it was direct involvement of political representatives from all unionist parties who were there liaising with the police to make certain that everything went smoothly. And the Sinn Féin had its right to have its rally, and those who have suffered at the hands of IRA terrorism had a right to have their rally, and the two went off totally peacefully. Right, and do you believe that Sinn Féin was insensitive to victims of the IRA? Yes, Absolutely. To come into a town that has been ravaged by IRA violence and has widows and orphans and was blown to pieces by the IRA during the Troubles, uh, to come into a town where, frankly, they have little or no support, I-, I think is insensitive, and I think it would be much better if they went and had rallies in places where they were actually welcome. But why? I mean, Sinn Féin doesn't <laughs> represent the IRA now. Uh, oh. The war is over, is it not? Well, interestingly enough, Michael, amongst their crowd was a convicted IRA terrorist, and that was very insensitive to have him there. And the Sinn Féin still apologise and support the IRA terror campaign. And there are too many victims in Balnehinch for them to be marching in and having their rally. Uh, I think they best to go to places where it wouldn't cause as much pain. And uh, so therefore, I, I think we, the unionists have a right to have their protest, but also we had a right to make certain it was peaceful and there was nothing happened that caused the police any problems whatsoever. All right. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, DUP MLA Jim Wells. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM.
Yeah, there was uh, much uh, surprise and uh, a lot of controversy last week when uh, the Minister for Transport, uh, Shane Ross, uh, described uh, Imelda Munster, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport and uh, TD in Louth, as being like uh, a donkey at the last hurdle in the last race compared to her thoroughbred colleagues in the party. Uh, Imelda Munster is on the line now, and I understand uh, you're not accepting how Shane Ross has apologised for this. He, he said uh, that he apologised for any offence uh, that may have been taken and that he was using an analogy, but you want a, a formal apology. Well, yes, I, I haven't gotten an apology from him. Um, Mike, he hasn't contacted me. I'd read it in one of the, um, new, as a news item on one of the news websites. Um, he hasn't contacted me, and I've written to the Karen Corlea, um looking for for Minister Ross to apologise on the floor of the doll, you know, to, uh, that it's on the record. Now, the Karen Corley had written back to me and they've referred it on to the Committee of, on Procedure. So they'll take a decision, I think, tomorrow on that. OK. On what basis uh, do you want them to do this? Well, I'm, firstly, I mean, it's, it's for a senior government minister. It's um, unparliamentary language at first. But uh, as well as that, I mean, it, it's my job as an opposition spokeswoman um, to ask questions of the minister and to hold the minister to account. And the minister, you know, it's not just a job he has. It's as if sometimes he enjoys having the title of minister, but doesn't actually accept the responsibilities that comes with it. And it's it's his job to, you know, it's it's our job to hold him to account and it's his job to answer questions and to, you know, ac- accept recommendations or whatever that's mm. made from um, opposition spokespeople if, if he agrees with them. And know? is it that you feel that he undermined you or set out to undermine you? Well, I, I know why he did it. I, I do know why he did it. He did it because, firstly, to mask his own incompet- incompetency on this particular issue because um, from I started first questioning weeks ago <coughs> about the green card, I knew instantly his, his first response, it's a matter for the insurance companies. And I knew then it was going to be a typical hands-off approach to it. Um, now, as I said to him when he when he said that, I stood up and I had said, I think, you know, you can insult me all you want mm. if it's to mask your own incompetencies. I can take it and I can take it. You know, I'm tough-skinned and I'm comfortable in my own skin. I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I'm mm. just comfortable in my own skin. Um, but, you know, if if that's what he has to do to mask his own incompetency on this issue... You know, fair enough. But for a senior government minister to use language like that to be just insulting because he was coming under pressure on it, mm. it's just not acceptable. OK, uh, so you, you do feel personally insulted by it? No, I wouldn't say. No, mm. it's more effective. As I said, I, I, like I'm comfortable in my own skin, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and I got up and said that to him, insult me all you like, you know. Uh, the fact is, he hasn't hasn't done his job on on this, you know. And I I could actually, you know, when you get a gut feeling in your stomach, I got that gut feeling weeks ago when I first had raised it with him that it was just the typical hands off approach, and it it has proved to be the case right through, you know. And he's he's oblivious to the the concern, the confusion that all of this has has resulted in mm. because he didn't do his job. 
Yeah, but he didn't do himself any favours using that language either. I don't think anybody uh, would have uh, approved of what he said and then that led to, to the apology and then when government spokespersons were asked about it, they said, well, look, he's uh, apologised and of course he was wrong. He shouldn't have said it in the first instance. Yes, well, I, I don't know. I think maybe it was RTE that asked him the question, um, you know, would he would he apologise? I don't know the, the, the background around that, but... Um, as far as I'm concerned, he didn't apologise to me, but he should apologise, have it on the record of the doll. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, as I said, for a minister, a senior government minister, to use on parliamentary language like that, when an opposition spokesperson is asking them questions on an issue, you know, to retort with something like that, it's just, it's just not acceptable. There's uh, obviously a, a very poor relationship uh, between the two of you. It wasn't just... Uh the way uh, he used that analogy as he, he, he put it. Uh, but uh, we listened uh, to the interaction between the two of you on the programme uh, last week and I think anybody listening would uh, have heard uh, two people who, who clearly don't like each other at all. No, I wouldn't say that I, I dislike him. Oh, here she comes again. I, I mean, <laughs> uh, but, uh, this, that, 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 that was uh, the way he started off well, his response to you. Know, every time she comes <laughs> in here, she's always the same and all that sort of... I mean, uh, he, he obviously has no respect for you, and I, 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 I don't know if that's a two-way street. No, I'd say no. I mean, I would respect anybody in their position, but I, I know I get under his skin because I press issues with him, I push him on issues, I'm a straight talker, and I tell him, how it is, you know, and I, I hold him to account as best I can. And that niggles him. And, you, you know, you can see that it niggles him. And even uh, the week prior to that, we had a transport committee meeting on rural transport and local link services. And I was going through the correspondence before the, the, the meeting. And um, I note, noted correspondence from the minister's secretariat that said, due to the pressures of work, the minister can't be here. And I forget the exact, the remainder, of the, but it was more or less, uh, should the NTA is there to answer your questions so you'll all be grand. So I thought, I couldn't believe it. I said, hold on a second. We have a crisis in rural transport. And he sends us, his secretary, gets the secretary to send us an, an email for the correspondence to say due to the pressures of work. So this is his job. Where is he? And then it turns out, as the meeting went on, mm-hmm. that he was up on a topical issue um, in the do- on the doll floor when we were discussing the, you know, the crisis in rural transport. It's his job to be there. And he absolved himself again of all responsibilities and put his responsibilities on the NTA. You know, that sort of hands-off approach. And I flagged that up. And it does, it does know him. But that's his mm. job. I mean, that is his job. That's what he's paid to do. It's not just the title that comes with it. There's work to be done, there's responsibility. Okay, maybe maybe that's why he's taken this attitude with you, because you say he's not doing his job. And, and yes, well, particularly firstly, the not turning up for the Rural, the rural Transport Committee meeting, but of the most recent one is the, the, the green card. You know, the, the, mm. the lack of I mean, I continuously asked him what personal interventions he'd made with the EU Commission in relation to a dispensation for Ireland. What personal interventions he'd made, you know, seeking some sort of waiver. Mm-hmm. And at one stage of the committee, he sa- I said, did you? And he said, yes. And then when I asked him again, because I put it down as a, one of my priority questions, and again, he turns and says, my department. 
though unlike other ministers, he actually didn't take this by the scruff of the neck, if you, look, if you like, and, you know, plead the case with the commission. Okay. To have this, and that's, right. that's the frustrating part. And if okay. he wants and the to minister, by name calling, that's fair enough. All right, well, we we heard the minister's defence and him saying uh, that it's uh, really being looked at uh, on every level, and people are working hard and so on. But you're expecting a, an apology just to conclude. Well, yes, if it if it uh, if the procedures committee agree that an apology should be given, um, then he will he will be required to give it on the the floor of the house. Okay, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning, Sinn Fein TD for Louth Meldemunster. Michael Reed on LMFM. How did Lisa Smith uh, go from army life in Dundalk to a war zone in Syria? Well, her life path is uh, traced in the Irish Examiner today by Caroline O'Doherty, who writes extensively about Lisa. Good morning to you, Caroline, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, you talk about some of the ways people described Lisa in the past, engaging and kind, vulnerable and gullible, extreme and dangerous, and how they may end up describing her going into the future. Well, that's it. I mean, it's a case of would the real Lisa Smith stand up because um, it's quite hard to uh, know which person you're actually dealing with and or, or how she, you know, it uh, transformed from, from from one to the next. You know, there are, there are kind of two aspects to this, um, you know, how she actually physically ended up in Syria. Not such a mystery there. There is a, a well-worn path now at this stage um, uh, across Europe of um, Westerners who are ISIS sympathisers, ISIS brides, we've heard them called, or, or ISIS fighters. Um, making their way across, drawn to what they would see as um, this movement and the needs of the people involved in it and so on. And it's not that hard to get to Syria, for example. Uh, There's an extensive border with Turkey. Irish people can get to Turkey with ease. You can go across the border. There's refugee camps there. It's quite a fluid uh, situation, movement of people. And once you're there, uh, a network of contacts will have been set up in advance. Everyone has mobile phones. You can meet these contacts and they'll, you know, find you a setup within Syria. I suppose the bigger question for all of us is, you know, psychologically, how do you make that journey from what is, uh, to all intents and purposes, a very ordinary lifestyle, an ordinary mm. girl in an ordinary town growing up with Western values and, and Western culture uh, to align herself with this very extreme, restrictive, conservative, violent movement, probably the, the most in the world, really, at this stage. So what happened uh, from the Lisa Smith uh, sort of in her late 20s uh, to Lisa Smith in her late 30s uh, to make that huge transformation? And what we what we know, we know from her own words, which is a coincidence and a mm. happy one, I suppose, because it saves us guessing too much. She did an interview about eight years ago when she had recently converted to Islam. It was uh, There was a feature, an article done in the newspaper and it was, it was quite a gentle interview um, but it did look into what was driving her and what her views were and so on. And she seemed, she came across as a woman simply looking for meaning in life. Um, she would have done at that stage maybe six, seven, eight years in, in, in the Defence Forces um, and she came from a Catholic background but not a like many of us do, not a particularly religious background. Um, she had friends, a social life, and it didn't, it lacked sort of meaning for her. Um, and she started looking around, looking to express spirituality in different ways. She looked into Buddhism, she looked into different areas, and what she felt drawn to was, was Islam. And she said in the interview that that was through women in the general area, mm. acquaintances of friends, friends, acquaintances, and she kind of liked the lifestyle and the sort of the peace that they, she saw that they emanated. She was introduced to the Quran, which in a very simple and very basic level um, is quite attractive in ways, in the way it, it, it talks about women 
in terms of honouring them and protecting them and elevating them, taken to extremes. And there are so many different degrees of, of, of the Islam faith. You cannot say they're all the same in any way, but taken to its absolute extreme, that means virtually imprisoning women, shielding them from all outside influences and, and, and you know making all decisions for them and completely undercutting their independence. That's the situation she seems to have ended up in. And that's what's harder, I suppose, to understand. An independent Mm. woman earning her own wage with her own career and, you know, in that sort of intervening 10 years uh, is now a sort of, uh, you know, a refugee. And uh, it seems, you know, ISIL sympathizers suspect uh, under army watch in a refugee camp in in eastern Syria. Yeah, very hard to understand uh, uh, under any circumstances. uh, But I I would imagine that, uh, like many 37-year-olds from Dundee, Dock, uh, she would have been fairly typical in that she would have had a, a Catholic upbringing, as you say, uh, and uh, that's uh, depicted quite clearly by the photograph in the Irish Examiner today of her on her first communion day, looking like any other little girl in Dundalk, undoubtedly at the time. The newspaper interview that you talked about, uh, she spoke uh, about doing what a lot of people of her age would have done going out, drinking, socialising, nightclubbing, maybe dabbling uh, in hash and things like that. Uh, but then uh, it changes uh, in that uh, she wasn't just a, a member of the Defence Forces. She worked on the government jet. Uh, Bertie Ahern has uh, remembered her. Indeed, Dermot Ahern, as uh, the local TD, talked about how she stood out on the jet because of uh, the accent. And we asked her, of course, was she from Dundalk? And then they became great friends and so on. But to go from that uh, into this other part of the world, which most of us find so difficult to understand under the best of circumstances, is very hard to, to contemplate. Uh, she came to light because of an ITV interview, apparently. That's right. A few weeks ago, what has happened is um, ISIL has uh, one of its last strongholds is this area called Baghouz, um, uh on the Iraqi border, and um, uh, basically, you know, the uh, Assad forces in, in large parts of, of Syria, and then uh, the U.S.-backed forces and Kurdish forces have all been uh, clamping down over the last few years, and with more and more success, if you like, uh, uh, on ISIL. And this was one last stronghold, and it was basically falling. And in recent weeks, there's been a stream of refugees. Outfit, mainly women and children, but also men. The men have been taken away to detention camps. Uh, the women and children have been treated um, as, as humanitarian cases. Mm. So they're being looked after as refugees, but also under this kind of watchful eye of the military um, and it's mainly US and, and Kurdish military who are keeping an eye on them so it's a slightly unusual situation in that yes they're refugees yes they're humanitarian cases they're being fed and looked after and those, can, those all their needs taken care of but there is this uh, I suppose extra watch being placed on them because there is this suspicion that some of the women um, you know the, the, I'd say pretty much probably all uh, align themselves to some extent with ISIL but whether that's uh, you know happen chance and um, because uh, that was where their, their, their partners, their husbands, uh, that was where they ended up, that's where they originated, or you know, was this a deliberate move by some of these women to come and sort of bolster uh, the Levant, bolster the, the ISIL regime uh, by adding, them, by adding their, their, themselves to it and their, their children to it. But even that, it's going to be very hard to work out what the intent was in all of that. Um, you know, Charlie Flanagan spoke at the weekend um, about the difficulty of, of 
proving that she would have done anything wrong. And there'll be a lot of you know, private views, a lot of public views about that, that of course she did something wrong, she supported this regime. But, you know, did she support it? Did she get sucked into it? Did she initially support it and then got so far into it that she was essentially trapped? These are huge questions. And, it's, it, it, you know, that, that's kind of the fascinating and difficult area of all of this is to understand at, at what stage she went from an independent-minded woman making decisions in her own right to not being able to do anything about the situation she found herself in. She was, we know she has a child, uh, seems to be about two years old, and that would have certainly limited um, her, her chances of, of making any decisions to back out of where she was. And then also, I mean, she wouldn't have found any... Um, independent supports of herself. We understand she did maintain contact with her family to some degree in recent years, but that would have loosened and, and, and lessened over time. And she, as far as we know, uh, up till this morning, even there hasn't been an official request from her for consular assistance from the Department of Foreign Affairs here. Um, so to what extent she wants the help of the Irish authorities, to what extent she feels the need, that there feels that she's able to ask for the help, we don't know that either. Okay. Uh, so there's still a huge amount of questions. The Department of Foreign Affairs here are keeping a very close eye on it, trying to okay. get as much information as they can, but they can't kind of swoop in there and, and, and bring her home. Okay. That has Caroline. to be a two-way process. Thank you indeed, Caroline O'Doherty, Senior Journalist with the Irish Examiner. Now, let's uh, try and get the answers to some of those questions, if that is at all possible. Dr. Sheikh Umar Al-Quadri, the Chair of the Irish Muslim Peace and Integration Council and the Islamic Centre of Ireland is on the line. Uh, good morning to you and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, what does it mean to be radicalised? Uh, good morning. Uh, what does it mean to be radicalised? Um, radicalisation, I believe, is a process where uh, people, um, they, they adopt or they embrace a particular ideology in which violence becomes justified in their view and they, uh, they, they act upon the violence. Uh, or they support that violence uh, that is committed in the name of any ideology. And I believe that is the process of radicalization. And does that mean if somebody has become radicalized that they are a dangerous person? I believe any person that is radicalized it is, uh, is, is a dangerous person indeed. Uh, such a person may not uh, personally uh, act upon, uh, upon violence, but certainly would support violence, would, would be sympathetic towards violence and would promote that ideology that justifies violence in the name of uh, religion or in the name of any other political agenda. Uh, so such a person, I believe, uh, must be de-radicalized. Such a person must go through a de-radicalization program. Unfortunately, in Ireland, we do not have a process uh, when it comes to how to deal with foreign return fighters, how to deal with people that are radicalized, uh, particularly uh, Islamist extremism or radicalization that is related to Islamist extremism. We do not have any such procedure, any such process. Many of Lisa's family, uh, neighbours uh, and uh, friends from years gone by listening to us in Dundalk uh, this morning, uh, obviously they'd uh, be very concerned for her today uh, and very curious as to how she made, her, made some of uh, the decisions uh, that she made throughout her, her life. What relationship have you uh, and uh, your community had with Lisa? Uh, well, I personally did not, and neither did the imam of the Dundalk Mosque uh, know. Uh, Lisa, uh, the first time I heard about her was when I, uh, when I uh, went through the news reports, and the same applies for Imam Noor uh, of the Dundalk Mosque. Uh, we were obviously uh, shocked at uh, the revelation that someone who had, uh, you know, embraced Islam, but unfortunately, 
then uh, was radicalized, then fell into the trap of, of, of these extremists, uh, then joined uh, the, the so-called Islamic State. And that particular individual was not just a new Muslim, happened to be someone who was a former member of the Irish Defence Forces and, and worked at the government chair. I think that was quite shocking for, for, for all of us. Um, the community in, in Dundalk um, that is uh, very active in the mosque does not know her either. Uh, but at the same time, we are advising members of our community that have ever come in contact with her, that have, have ever met her at an, at an event or so, to contact the Gardaí, the law enforcement. So uh, the law enforcement needs all the support they can get to help with the investigation. Uh, how did Lisa become radicalized? Where did she become radicalized? Because we obviously need the answers to those questions mm. if we want to avoid this happening in the future again. Yeah, because uh, in that newspaper interview that Caroline O'Doherty was talking about uh, a moment ago, she said uh, that she became interested uh, in uh, converting because of how Muslim women seemed to her. They seemed so peaceful and content and never seemed to be worrying uh, about stuff. So that seems like a huge leap to go from that line of thought to one which would support violence. Absolutely. And I think that uh, between those, that interview and obviously the, uh, her leaving uh, for, for the so-called Islamic State, uh, she, has been, she had been radicalised. She fell into the trap of, of, of extremism. And, and when did that happen? How did that happen? I believe it is really important that we have, that we find the answers to that. Mm. And do the answers lie within the Islamic community here? Not necessarily. I believe that the answers may even lie perhaps uh, on, on, on social media. Most of the people that are radicalised, um, when it comes to radicalization or extremism related to the so-called Islamic State, most of the people that joined them happened to be uh, radicalized online. So I would not be surprised. In fact, I, 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 I think that she probably also was radicalized online. But at the same time, there is obviously um, a, a chance, a small chance that she was radicalized face to face by an individual. Um, and we obviously have to find answers to that. I think uh, what we need to understand is that... Um, we in Ireland obviously uh, need legislation in place firstly uh, on how to deal with people that have supported or have joined such um, uh, terrorist organizations and groups. And before we have that legislation, I think to bring back um, citizens um, without having a process, without having a procedure, without having legislation on how to, uh, you know, how to proceed or how to persecute those individuals, I think it is quite problematic. I, at the same time, want to mention that I do believe that Lisa is an Irish citizen. She was born and bred in Ireland. This is her home. This, she is part of the society. So obviously she should be back in Ireland. But at the same time, uh, I would be very concerned, and many Muslims and many non-Muslims would be concerned, having such an individual roam freely in the streets of Dundalk or in the streets of Ireland. So at the same time, we do believe that the justice should be served. Okay, we'll leave there. Thank you. It's nice to talk to you again and thank you for joining us this morning. Dr. Sheikh Umar Al-Quadri, the Chair of the Irish Muslim Peace and Integration Council and the Islamic Centre of Ireland, brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie.